Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to Parenthood Friday and all of the new and extra listeners that I know are listening uh, particularly to today in the next few weeks because I'm doing a collection, which by the way, I've never actually done a collection uh, for Parenthood episodes before. I usually do them on my Wednesdays, but you guys asked and so here we are. I have called this collection Shot in the Dark. So Welcome to all of you who are listening. I might even get these episodes to go over the Wednesdays as well. We'll see how we go because there is just so much to cover. But just before we get into that, um, I want to say thank you to all of the people who are jumping on either the episode show notes where you're listening right now or on girlnextdoor.podcast to help support this podcast using uh, the Buy Me A Coffee platform. I'll give a shout out to the new members at the end and also to the people doing support uh, who are supporting just with one of donations. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. I do have a a goal where I would love to be able to actually start podcasting fully a day a week rather than in um, outside of all of my work hours, which is what I do at the moment. But anyway, on with today. So this entire collection is going to be exploring the Australian Childhood Immunisation Schedule. I actually thought quite a bit about whether to do this collection. Um, I, I wasn't going to. I've thought about it before and just gone, no way, I'm not putting myself out there like that. Uh, but then I put it to you guys and the clear majority of you said, yes, please. So here we are. As I always say in this podcast, my purpose is never to tell you what to think, but just to encourage you to think. And so the information that I'm presenting, I certainly don't want to tell anybody what to do or what you should think. I just want to present information so that you're actually able to to think about this subject. My purpose is really to explore the why behind our Australian childhood vaccination schedule There's a lot of questions that I have, a lot of observations that I've made, so a whole heap of whys. Uh, A few examples are, why has the schedule tripled over time? Uh, Why are we giving vaccines for infectious diseases that don't pose, uh, you know, or don't pose or are very, very low risk to our children. I mean, the first one I think of is the the chickenpox, which I had as a kid, but now it's a vaccine. Like, why would that be so? Um, I wonder why parents are punished, I guess, if they don't vaccinate their children by having welfare pay- payments taken away or not being able to put their children in, in childcare. Like, why is that? Um, I want to know, are there long-term studies That have been done to prove that what we're putting in our children is safe and effective. Um, I've got concerns, uh, particularly as a teacher, which I'll talk about in a moment, on seeing the astronomical rise in childhood chronic illnesses, both physical and neurological. I think we should be allowed to ask questions about that as well. And who are the people behind making all of these policies and decisions on behalf of us parents for our children? And I think that these are really reasonable questions. I think that they're questions that all parents 
should be able to ask without feeling bad about that. I've actually been slowly wondering these things more and more over the decades ever since I started teaching because I have been for decades on the front line of watching children over this time as the schedule has increased. So I'm not sure how many episodes we're going to do on this today. What I want to do is look at the history of the schedule, how it started in the 60s and where it's tracking to now, and look at why it's so dramatically increased and who is behind that over history. Like Who was making the decisions in the 60s, the 70s, the 90s compared to now? So if you don't want to know about this topic, then rather than listen or send in bad reviews just because you don't want to listen or talk about it or have these, you might not have these questions yourself and that's totally within your right, just skip over these episodes. So these are for those of you who really want to go along with me in asking some questions and getting some reassurances when we're injecting our children in their developmental years with the largest amount of vaccines ever in the history of the world. And I don't know about you guys, but has anyone else noticed how many children are being diagnosed with all sorts of physical and neurological illnesses from asthma to allergies to arthritis to anaphylaxis, autism, Asperger's, ADHD? I've been thinking about this for years And I think it's actually sad and kind of dangerous that people might automatically put labels like anti-vax on anyone who discusses this topic. So firstly, I want to say loud and clear, this is not a pro or anti-vax debate. This is just a discussion around the facts and it's the asking of the hard questions, which I always say we should do about every area of our lives. Now, secondly, and you're going to see why throughout these episodes, but the label anti-vax has actually been adopted to stigmatize people. And I just wonder, what do you guys think? Like, why would that be? Because it's really actually healthy for science to be debated. Science is meant to be debated, discussed, put under the microscope. Otherwise, it wouldn't be science. It would be opinion. Science should be able to hold up under such scrutiny. So when we're not allowed to have one half of the discussion, that does raise a lot of suspicions. I thought of it like this. Here's a bit of an analogy. When it comes to food, most of us like to know what we're putting in our bodies, especially when you have babies and toddlers, right? As mums, if you're like me or just in general, we check the labels on food, right? Like I know, for example, every time I buy my maple syrup, I'm like, hang on a second, is this maple syrup or is this actual, like, is this just like a pretend counterfeit or is this actually real deal like maple syrup? Do you know what I'm saying? There's like the greens brand and it's actually just maple flavored syrup. It's not right. So I'm like, hang on a second. What am I buying? How many preservatives are in this thing? Uh, so I check the labels on most things that I fed my kids. I still check labels. The other day I was trying to find some crackers that didn't have vegetable oil in them. I'm like, and I could not find one lot of crackers in the supermarket shelf that didn't have vegetable oil, which is so bad for us. I turned over box after box. So for all of us that check food labels, are we anti-food, right? That would just be ridiculous. So when I want to know what's on the label then that I'm injecting into my two-month-old, I'm also not an anti-vaxxer either. In fact, it's actually more important that we ask the questions about what we're injecting even more so than our food. Because when we ingest something, 
it's completely different to injecting something. When we ingest something, there are actually several barriers that help process and protect us before the food's digested, right? So there's mucus in our saliva that can trap pathogens. Then there's stomach acid that can destroy pathogens. Then our immune system uh, can attack foreign bodies and our gut bacteria. These are all powerful layers of protection. But when we inject, it bypasses the first couple of lines of defense because they need it to in order to be effective. Now, I got this information on a totally uh, pro-vaccine website, and they actually said, and I'm quoting from there, we can't have ingestible vaccines because they would have difficulty getting past the hostile environment of the GI tract. Polio is the exception as that is a gut pathogen and can be delivered orally. So all that information is on a very pro-vaccine website where it's like, yeah, this stuff that's injected gets past a lot of barriers and goes straight into our systems very quickly. So I don't think it's a bad thing to ask, hang on a second, you know, I've never seen a label of anything I've injected into my kids. Can I have a look at one, please? These episodes are not based on my opinion. They're based on hours and hours and days of reading and research. They're backed by hundreds of articles and studies, too many for me to constantly stop and list. So please don't leave a review going, oh, she says she's researched, but we don't know where. Um, I list down everything in my notes, in my own notes of where I get stuff from. So if you want links to anything, just jump on my socials and I can send them to you. I'll do my best to share what I've found and to put everything in an easy to understand order because it could get quite complex. Also, please let me state loud and clear, guys, I am not against vaccines, okay? Um, I had all my childhood vaccines. My kids have had all of theirs, but I don't even like the fact that I feel I have to clarify that here because at the same time, I've got many friends who do not vaccinate and I feel like, you know, in me justifying myself that I'm doing that because, oh, I don't want to be put into that basket when in reality, it is completely in their right or your right to do so. And nobody's got the right to label them or you anything at all. So unfortunately, I have been labeled anti-vax and those people know who they are. And it's actually, guys, that is the lowest form of name calling. Those people really should be ashamed of themselves to make such baseless claims. But I understand that the reason that they do so is because of their own fear of being canceled and called out. So it's just easier to label me in that basket. Asking questions, it's a responsibility and it does take courage. So as I said, I'm not against vaccines at all. I just want to know that they're safe, that they're necessary, that they're effective, and that therefore what it does make me is pro-choice. When we're injecting chemicals into our system, we should all have a choice. So let me tell you the little journey that has led me here because it's actually gone over quite a few decades. And look, looking back, I can see how all the puzzle pieces have fitted to this point in time where I'm like, hang on a second, I want to know a little bit more. So um, there have been many touch points along the way. So I'll try to share them pretty quickly so we can get into the, the history, which is what I wanted to share with you today. I started teaching in the mid-1990s. I was super young when I came out of uni. I was actually 19. And as the years went by and the 90s rolled into the 2000s, and by the way, any teacher who's been teaching uh, that long will tell you the same thing, I noticed, and I would often comment to Cameron over the years, what the heck is going on? The kids are getting more and more and more of the same things, like more childhood illnesses, 
both physical and neurological. So the very first thing I noticed in the 90s was anaphylaxis. Now, when I first started teaching, I had not even heard of it, barely heard of it. And I'd certainly never heard of an EpiPen. Now, I had the occasional child who was allergic to eggs or a bee sting. I remember one child I had was allergic to dust and his mum would have to like wash his quilt and put it out to dry every day. But that was rare and just here and there. And slowly the number of kids increased, the reactions increased. And the next thing, we were being brought into the staff room for a professional development afternoon for training on how to use an EpiPen. And then by the time I was teaching here in Queensland, it wasn't rare anymore. I had multiple children in every single class that had allergies ranging from mild to extremely severe to life-threatening. I have had children in my class who were so full of eczema. One girl was bandaged from head to toe, and I almost used to cry watching her during break times when all the other kids would be eating. She would be sitting there pulling back her bandages, itching, open, weeping wounds. I had a boy who had such a severe nut allergy, he had to carry his EpiPen in a bum bag at all times. I saw a huge rise in the years of neurological issues. So at the beginning of my career, there might have been one child with ADD every second year and probably one child in the entire school that had autism. Now, younger teachers or people in general, when you have this discussion, would always say the same thing. They'd go, oh, no, it's just because kids are better diagnosed now. But I can tell you, look, it's not the case. And look, there could be an overdiagnosis going on. I do agree with that. But it's not the case that, oh, kids were just missed, right? Because guess who used to do the diagnosing, guys? It was actually a huge part of our job as teachers, particularly in prep year one and year two. Most children were not diagnosed with anything in kindergarten. Autism was not allowed to be diagnosed until they were eight. And so it was actually our job as teachers to help get children diagnosed who we suspected uh, particularly had neurological or learning issues. So like I said, they don't like to diagnose children too early. So most came to school undiagnosed. Now, as a teacher, we very quickly could recognize those children and we would work with a whole host of people, the, the special ed teacher, the parents, occupational therapists and pediatricians to get a diagnosis. Teachers are a part of the diagnosis. We would be sent questionnaires to help the pediatrician. So no, it wasn't that diagnoses were missed because teachers were part of the front line. And I'm telling you, there are way more children now with those issues than in the 90s because we would have recognized them even back then. So the chickenpox vaccine, for example, um, so this, I'm continuing my journey. I remember thinking that that was a bit of an overkill and that raised concerns for me. I remember, you know, as a child, I got chickenpox. It's like this rite of passage, right? And I remember being uncomfortable and itchy and my mum would put me in calamine lotion baths and I stayed home and I got a scar or two. Uh, But then all of a sudden, when my oldest two were little, I remember trying to get them to get chickenpox. Like I would, we would have chickenpox parties. I would take them to my friend's house and be like, go and play really close next to so-and-so. And they just didn't get it. But then by the time I had Ashton, 
it was like, oh, look, look at that. Just boom, on the schedule, there's the chickenpox vaccine. And I remember just thinking, oh, okay. And then I remember when Liam was in high school, uh, all of a sudden there was this brand new meningococcal um, vaccine. And I remember the, the, the fear that the media were putting in us at the time because there were a few cases. And so, of course, what do they do? They put the story in the media of the one person who lost their limbs um, and they were reporting cases that were going around high school. But, you know, it's not, um, it's not the trending thing at the moment to talk about meningococcal, but there was a period of time. And, of course, it happened to correlate with when they were trying to put the vaccine in the high school. Now, I thought about it. And I remember thinking, oh man, if Liam like lost a limb because he got men in meningococcal and I could like stop that, then I'd be crazy not to get him vaccinated, right? Like he would, he would hate me the rest of his life. He's sporty. So I lined him up and guess what? It was actually my family doctor later that said that was actually unnecessary. And I remember word for word, this is what my doctor had said, never get a vaccine for a virus. It doesn't work. And in my 20 years of practice, this doctor said, I've seen very few cases and they've all been fine. It's very rare for it to be severe. So it was my doctor in that case saying to me, you probably shouldn't have got him to have it. And I felt so terrible. Then along comes the HPV vaccine. And uh, this one probably got my alarm bells ringing the most. Um, I was probably a little bit worried about this one because it was so new. Look, I should have been worried about the, the meningococcal one because it was new as well. But this one, I just didn't understand. I thought, why are they injecting them at the age of 13 and 14? They're not sexually active yet. And so it really got my my uh, my alarm bells going. And I thought, okay. So I started researching into that one a little bit more. Um, and I knew and started finding out some stuff that I was like, oh, I'm not so sure. And then I started to see the reports of terrible adverse reactions, uh, particularly in healthy, sporty young men and women. So that one got my alarm bells going. So that's kind of been my journey over the years. There were other touch points as well, but I think slowly I was just different things didn't make sense. And I just thought, hang on, I want to know a little bit more. Happy to line them up for it, but I just want to know a little bit more. So um, we will get into this in another episode, but because I want to focus on the history today, but there has been a documented massive increase, like I said before, in childhood chronic illnesses. So I listed a few of them, asthma, anaphylaxis, diabetes, autism, etc. And that happened at the same time that the number of childhood vaccines were massively added to the Australian schedule. Now you might say to me, well, Renee, that could be because of anything, right? Like it could be due to our diets and food and the chemicals or maybe our water. And I completely agree. It absolutely, they could be contributing factors. They could be the very reason. But I'm just wondering when two things increase simultaneously, the rise of these illnesses and the increase in the vaccination schedule, even though the correlation doesn't mean causation, shouldn't we at least investigate? And so the fact that it hasn't been investigated is really concerning. So absolutely, please investigate the food. Please investigate the plastics. Please investigate the water. And can we also please just investigate the vaccines? Because I'm highly concerned about why our children are suffering such high amounts of poor health outcomes. It's not normal. And if we look a few decades back, it wasn't happening. 
So why is it happening now? All right, so let's get into the history of the vaccine schedule. I've got a little piece of paper. There you go, just to prove it. You can hear it. A piece of paper in front of me uh, that you can download yourself where um, it's like a little downloadable PDF and it's got the national Australian immunization schedule on it. So you can go and download that yourself. I've also got another piece of paper. <laughs> just so you know, there's something in my hand, guys. And this one is comparing the vaccine schedule from 1960 to 1975 to 1996 to 2018, of which it has increased even more now in 2023. It is really, really fascinating. And I don't know when you were born, but um, it's really interesting to look back. I was a child of the 70s and the 80s, and so my schedule was nowhere near the schedule that is today. So interestingly, it's actually almost tripled since the 70s. Now, in the 1960s, let's start there. There was actually not a national vaccine schedule. It actually didn't exist. There were just some vaccines that were completely voluntary that parents could give to their children if they wanted. And the ones that were covered were diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, which is the same as pertussis, and polio. And you could have all three of them were in one shot and you could have them three times, including the polio. So all up, 13 doses if your parent wanted you to get that in the 60s. But there's actually not a lot of data to say how many kids were vaccinated, but it wasn't that many. So it was considered like, well, if you really want to, you can. Now, 1975, we started to have more of an actual national schedule. So this was my vaccine schedule. Now, remember 60s, 13 doses, 70s, 18 to 19 doses. Now, interestingly, they didn't start vaccinating a baby until they were three months. They never gave more than three doses at a time. And it was very, very spread out. And in the 70s is when they added measles and rubella. Okay, what about the 1990s? We start to see quite an increase. So if it started at 13 doses, the 70s, it was 18 to 19 doses. In the 90s, we jump up to 26 doses. So what have they added in? They've added in mumps and one called hibtita. No idea what that is, but hibtita. Let's fast forward to 2023. Okay, guys, I feel like I need a drum roll. Guess how many doses the children get now? So we started at 13. In the 70s, we had 18. In the 90s, we had 26. Now in 2023, 52 doses, and it begins at birth. Yes, guys, 52 doses before our children hit the age of 14. So they've added in, I had a look through it all and compared, they've added in Hep B, influenza type B, rotavirus, pneumococcal, influenza, meningococcal, chickenpox, and HPV. Now, like I said, in the 60s and 70s, they wouldn't give more than three doses at a time. Now, they give eight doses at a time. So when I was a kid, that only, again, I'd have three things at once, like it would usually be diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough all in one. Well, now they're rolling eight things into one. So with all of this extra protection and safety, the big question is, 
is the health of children in Australia improving? Now, it depends what you're looking at. Um, But if you're looking at chronic childhood illness, then the answer is no, because that has gone through the roof. So there is a journal of translational science. And let me quote from that. It says in this journal, vaccinations have prevented millions of infectious illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths amongst US children. Yet the long-term health outcomes of the vaccination schedule remain uncertain. What? If there is even a remote possibility that this could be true, why aren't they doing further investigations ASAP? So it's saying that they've prevented, I'm going to get into this probably more in the next episode, the vaccines have prevented millions of infectious illnesses and hospitalizations. But the thing is, and I'm going to, ta- I'm going to really dive deep more into this, but at what cost? Because those infectious illness, if, if we're talking things like chickenpox, while they're very uncomfortable, they're very rarely life-threatening. So if by health you mean the getting of infectious illness has declined, then yes, we've succeeded. But if by health you mean the number of children getting chronic illnesses has declined, well, then no, because it hasn't. That's actually risen astronomically. Their health over that time has massively declined. So the new norm in children's health since vaccination policies were implemented in the 90s includes allergies, anaphylaxis, vasculitis, chronic fatigue, autoimmune disorders like diabetes, arthritis, uh, autism, speech delays, neurological disorders, meningitis, ADHD, and many more. So again, while correlation is not causation, a fundamental principle of evidence-based medicine is to investigate all correlations before a drug is declared safe and effective. So the next big question is why and how has this schedule tripled? Like who's responsible for this and why have they increased? So a little bit of history and it's really fascinating because we just take for granted that we've got a Department of Health and we have a Minister of Health and we've all got Chief Health Officers uh, nationally but also in each state. When did that all start? The Commonwealth Department of Health was actually established in Australia in 1921 and a medical advisory board was established in 1927. So there you go. So fascinating how long we've had these departments around. And that was the beginning of like what we see as today's system, where the state and federal systems are relied on to keep us as a community healthy. Now, this is the difference and this is fascinating. Back then, there was what we call a social approach to medicine. It was social medicine rather than a scientific approach to health. So their job was to monitor things like clean air, water, our food, and the immunization services. So from 1920 to 1962, before mass vaccinations began, because remember vaccinations began in the 60s, except there was one, I think it was for smallpox. So before mass vaccination began, from 1920 to 1962, 
we saw the most significant decline in infectious diseases in all developed countries. How fascinating is that? Also, not only do we see the decline in the diseases, mortality of infectious diseases such as from scarlet fever, diphtheria, whooping cough, measles had significantly declined before vaccines for most of these diseases were ever available. How crazy is that, guys? So this was basically due to the fact that they had a social approach to medicine. So it was due to the massive reforms in clean water, adequate waste, sewage disposable, food hygiene, and especially better nutrition and housing. So in 1956, the Australian public health officials stated that all infectious diseases had been overcome. Boom. Even bef- that was way before, well, a few years before the vaccine schedule was rolled out. Now, that was stated by our very first Director General of Health, and his name was J.H.L. Cumpston. He declared this, this is accessible to anyone to read, but in 1956, he and other officials noted that the decline in risk from infectious diseases occurred and it occurred simultaneously with improvements in public health and prior to the introduction of most vaccines. And that's because we had improved living standards and lower infant mortality rates. And the most important factor that was recognized, by the way, was nutrition. So basically, in summary, public health reforms successfully reduced mortality and illness from infectious diseases in developed countries before vaccinations were used as a mass strategy. So what happened? How come we already had infectious diseases under control and then suddenly this vaccination schedule started to get rolled out? Because this is exactly what I saw. I mean, obviously I wasn't around in the 60s and I was a kid in the 70s, but I saw this happen with chickenpox. Like I said, we all got it growing up. We went to chicken pox parties. Very, very, very rarely was it life-threatening. Uncomfortable? Heck yes. I've still got a scar on my forehead to this day. So why was that, for example, turned into a vaccination? Because what's wrong with getting chicken pox? These are all the questions that I have. Welcome to my brain. So today the government recommends vaccines against 12 diseases before children turn one. And yet the majority of these vaccines were not required for children in the 50s and the 60s when infectious diseases were no longer considered a threat to the majority of children. And there's conclusive evidence, by the way, I've got links here again. If you want any of these, just ask me for them. So it's interesting how infectious diseases were not a threat to Australian children in the 50s and 60s, and they didn't need these vaccines. And yet a few decades later, the government are saying, well, before you're one, you have to be vaccinated against 12 diseases. So the big change happened in the 70s, guys. Australia's public health policy was no longer just designed by Australians for Australians. So the big influence here was the WHO and UNICEF. So what happened was Australia joined them as part of an international effort to vaccinate all the children of the world. And this initiative was known as the Expanded Program on Immunization. You can look that up, the EPI, Expanded Program on Immunization. So each country was encouraged to adopt not their own strategy, 
strategies, but the strategies set by the WHO. And I'll explain more about that in later episodes. So I guess the interesting takeaway here is the approaches of the 50s and 60s compared to now, because in the 50s and 60s, we had a social medicine approach focused on reducing risk from infections, uh, from infectious diseases by better lifestyle practices. Whereas by the time we hit the 70s, Australia joined the WHO and they were the ones that introduced the scientific medical model. And this was focused on preventing. So not lowering the risk. Their thing was we want to now prevent. So we don't want one kid to get one of these diseases. That that was kind of where it's flipped around. And the way they were going to do that was not by social intervention, not by better living, better nutrition, but by medical intervention, intervention, aka vaccines. How interesting is that? So it's just two different ways to approach it. So one was about minimizing risk. The other was about preventing altogether. One was about improving our lifestyle through nutrition, hygiene, exercise, etc. The other was about medical interventions such as drugs, va- vaccines, and other pharmaceuticals. Hence, the use of vaccines rose significantly in the 1990s, um, again, because the WHO has constantly, over the decades, changed the uh, immunization schedule. They've added more and more, which I explained to you in the 90s. And then again, even since 2018, they've added another couple more. All right. So there you go. And they, they added those in after infectious disease had become a low risk because their aim went from uh, lowering the risk to wanting to prevent altogether. And so that's where the vaccines came in. But by the way, Here's a little nugget that I'll drop before we finish. Um, They changed the definition of the word vaccine when COVID rolled out because they realized that where their goal used to be to prevent infectious diseases, they knew with the COVID vaccine that it was not going to prevent transmission of these diseases. And so they had to change the definition of the word vaccine for that. Guys, is that not all flipping fascinating? So next week, we'll see where we go with it. Um, I'll get a little bit more into the WHO. Um, I want to talk about who are the people making the policies for us. Um, And I also want to talk about the vaccination ingredients and some interesting statistics that have come out of the CDC, which I know is in America, but we have a lot of the same vaccines here in Australia. They're just named different uh, different things. And yeah, interesting stuff like how apparently 45 to 50% of children from zero to 14 have a chronic illness of some sort, which is extremely um, concerning. So... Thanks, guys, for coming on the journey with me. Like I said, my um, my aim here is just to ask the questions because I think it's something we should all be pretty concerned about, um, especially if it's our children suffering. I do not like to see our children suffering. I just want to know why and a little bit more about it. And it's good to know the history. I love learning more about the history of Australia. Okay, so before we go, I just want to give a shout out and a big thank you to the Buy Me A Coffee Girl Next Door members. Thank you so much to Brooke, to Victoria, to Chloe, to an anonymous member, to Kylie, and to two new ones, Sophie and Louise, and also to supporters. I've had a couple of new supporters this week, Bernadette and Amy. Thank you so much, guys. Like I said, the link to that is in the show notes, or you can come along to Girl Next Door 
www.thehealthyhealth.podcast. If you have any particular questions um, that maybe I can research and help you with, especially around this shot in the dark, please come and chat to me on girlnextdoor.podcast. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. We'll continue this next week. Bye.